Cross the moat, count up box babies, meet a skexies on your doorstep. Life will be the best, surviving a composer's quest. You hear those sirens singing, the happy tune is your death. Life will be the best Surviving a composer's quest I used to walk All afraid Of those metroids on parade But now I'm feeling brave The dark lords fear my chords Dido Ananias would be thrilled if they could be us. Life will be the best, surviving a composer's quest. Welcome back to Composer Quest. I'm your host in Minneapolis, Charlie McCarran. And in this show, I talk with composers, songwriters, producers, and scientists about the creative process of making music. In today's episode, I pick the brain of composer and multimedia artist Noah Kiesecker. And in the process, we found out that Noah's perception of the world is very unique. I have a very strong correlation with smell. You know, Hmm. like things trigger, like things smell like stuff. Like the audio quality of the bassoon is a mossy log. Like it's a damp, huh. it's like a, a forest after like a gentle rain. So we'll get to hear how Noah's unique sensory experiences influences art. Noah also has some great advice on thinking outside the box as an artist, and he pulls no punches when we start talking about the downfalls of academia. We'll get to that shortly. First, some announcements. This episode is brought to you by my awesome Patreon patrons and by lynda.com. Linda is an online learning platform with over 3,000 on-demand video courses to help you improve your creative, technical, and business skills. For a free 10-day trial, go to lynda.com quest. That's Linda with a Y. Now, a moment to thank my patrons. This week, I have a jingle for my patron, Paul Sampson. Paul mentioned he liked modern experimental music, so I created this kind of crazy sound collage based on a comic strip that Paul created. Hope you like it, Paul. says my feet are just fine, so I'm discharged, released, free, but now I can't begin a sentence with the words, my podiatrist. Stick around till the end of the episode to learn about the techniques I used in making that track. Now, buckle your seatbelts for this episode with no Kiesecker. It's a long one, but a very fascinating adventure. Enjoy! Noah... 
Begrudgingly, now you are on Composer <laughs> Quest. Finally got you here. Finally. It was yes. about three years ago, almost, mm-hmm. that I met you. About three years. Springboard for the Arts. Yeah. And you were my artistic advisor, kind of. Yeah, I, we Biz- use a various... It's advisor, counselor, consultant. It's, you know, you had a great idea, and you come to Springboard, and we help you realize that so yeah yeah, that was about three years ago yeah so at that point i was kind of like wanting to get back into composing seriously yep and trying to figure out can i get grants anywhere or and like how to make my web presence better that kind of stuff money yep exposure (laughs) basically you know you a lot of people come in being like I have a great idea. How can I get money for it? And we do that. But there's a lot of other parts to that planning process. That kind of leads into a listener question from Maya Heyman, who is wondering, she was at the U of M with you yeah. in grad school. That was my and favorite thing when when I run across people where I'm like, we were in grad school together and we passed each other in the hallway and never spoke to each other. And now the internet has brought us back together. This is yeah. This is what the internet is best at. I love it. Yeah. Uh, thank you, technology. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so she was kind of wondering, like, was there anything in your grad school experience that you felt like was lacking, but maybe springboard for the arts is kind of like filling those gaps for people? Let's put it this way. I went to grad school and I learned nothing about running a small business. I learned nothing about marketing. I learned nothing about writing an artist statement. Um, I learned nothing about branding. I learned nothing about funding. I learned nothing about how to write a resume, actually. Like it was all skills building and capital A art development. And that's really good. But I left the University of Minnesota. I graduated. And uh, I was out for about a year before I got hired at Springboard. And the reason that I got hired was because I had a skill set that I had developed of all those things that I didn't learn at the University of Minnesota, but I learned by taking my own initiative. You know, I worked at like a PR firm in Eden Prairie. It was hmm. amazing. I was a cubicle rat. I worked on a campaign for curves. <laughs> what? <laughs> okay. Why? It doesn't matter. But the fact of the matter is that I got PR and marketing and project management experience from that. Um, you know, uh, Myself and Jay Anthony Allen and Zachary Crockett and Joshua Clausen, all my fellow composers at the University of Minnesota under the tutelage of Doug Gears, launched the Spark Festival of Electronic Music and Arts. You know, we basically were saying, we're not getting what we want, so we're going to make it up. And that's the thing, like, through going through grad school that was really... uh, at the time, 
I had no idea that I was not getting what I wanted. It wasn't until I left that I was like, I don't know how to do this. And you guys didn't give it to me. So I'm just going to figure it out on my own. And I land this job at Springboard, which seems like the perfect situation for me to take all of the stuff that I didn't learn in school, adapt what I learned from outside of academia, and then now hopefully we'll bring it back to those academic institutions to say that you're not offering this. It's necessary and crucial that you prepare your artists to be startups and entrepreneurs and small business owners. So yes, bit by bit, they're inviting me in. I speak at the University of Minnesota about two times a year, three times a year. I speak in the dance department. I've spoken in the art department and the theater department. Of all the art departments on the West Bank, the one I graduated from, the University of Minnesota's School of Music, has never once invited me back to speak to them about building a life as a small business, as an artist. Does that seem funny to you? (laughs) It seems funny to me. Funny and sad. It's super funny and super sad. Yeah. And so I, now I feel like it's my, my composer quest, so to speak, <laughs> yes. to basically say, this is my mission. This is like, take my real experience and my nonprofit arts experience and bring it back uh, to young artists. And it's totally possible. So, yeah. Sorry. I talk if- a lot and I ramble a lot. So <laughs> cut me off whenever you, oh, no, you can't that's, that's see good. us internet, but Charlie's over there like giving me like the cutthroat, like, stop it. We're done. Yeah. If you were going to give a young composer one piece of advice, you could only give one piece of advice for some reason. Oh. <laughs> one? Okay. All right. I'm up for the, I'm up for the quest. i guess you know what i i think i would go there's lots of like little practical things um that i fall back on but from academia the thing that has pushed me out of it and frustrated me the most and caused me the most stress is that students come in to an academic situation with a bunch of ideas very fresh And they don't have that experience of their professors and their professors are super jaded because they've got like 20, 30 years, 40 years on them of like experiencing things. And they can run the gamut from super engaged, very personable. I care about you. Lots of empathy and compassion to the other end where they're clocking in so they can get their money so they can do the thing at home. I give that about 80, 20, 80% of them are phoning it in and they're basically imposing their aesthetics on you. And this is the thing that stresses me out most about the work that I've created, which is to say, I can look back on a lot of it and say, yeah, I learned something important from that person. I learned not to do what they do. You know? Because it's not 
fun I, for you. Yeah, <laughs> it's like they were like, you need to think about this, and you need to create music like that. And the professors that I have had over life that have had a profound impact are the ones that are inspiring in a way that they say, let's work on what you want, as opposed to you following me and my style. And those are the things that I push back really hard against. And that somebody says, well, this is the way it's done. The first thing I think when someone says this is the way it's done is that must be the wrong way because that's couldn't possibly be true. Yeah. <laughs> look at humanity. Like look at Wikipedia. Yeah. There's no possible way that this is quote the way it's done. And I think academia pushes a lot of that and I mm. resent it and I hate it. And so if somebody goes into a graduate program thinking that they're going to buy prestige, which they can buy, like you can pay the money and get in and go to a Ivy league college and get great things out of it. Eh, I don't, I doubt that that makes you happier. It's totally incongruous to happiness success. Sure. But I, I could be more successful than I am now. And it is an inverse relationship to how much I enjoy it. You know, mm-hmm. but some people don't care about that. They're like, yeah, I want to go to grad school. I'll pay the money so I can study with the guy and uh, get the credentials, get the job. And that will make me happy. Mm-hmm. I think those people are dumb. <laughs> <laughs> I think they actually they think that'll make them happy. And the thing that makes me sad is it's going to take them 30 years to figure out that it doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> so your question was. To people going into those programs, what's my advice? It is to be confident in your questioning of authority, to be confident in your passions and your desire to pursue your artistic voice, regardless of what somebody tells you is good or bad, because they don't know. They're just acting on the present And I I really feel that people come into an institution with an idea of the future and then that gets squished out of them because the people that are the authority over them are thinking in the now and students come in with the potential for the future and their future gets squashed it's terrible. <laughs> what do you yeah. think it would take to change like that cycle of academia kind of like crushing people's dreams <laughs> in Dream some crushing? ways? How do we stop crushing people's dreams? Um, let's take a look at a spectrum of academic situations where you have conservatories on one side. On the other side, you have liberal arts schools in a weird sort of liberal extreme of that would be a place like um, Bennington College. It's like uh, there are no grades. You design your own curriculum. It's a mm. very like super hippie free form. <laughs> I think that's not the right choice always, but it is a extremely on the other end of the highly tracked like Big Ten graduate school conservatory method. And I think it's... Um, more 
student-driven curriculum development. Mm-hmm. Well, I recently went to your talk about artist statements. Oh, yeah. Maybe you could kind of explain the pyramid idea. Oh, the inverted triangle. Yeah. Yeah. When you read an article in a newspaper, they put the most important information at the top. So imagine a triangle that's like wide at the top and small at the bottom. Everything you need to know about that topic is at the top. And as you go down, there are details that become less important. That's why when you read a column in a newspaper, you get all the facts at the top and you know what you're looking at. And as you get to the bottom and it says jump to page 7F, you say, eh, I don't really need to do that. I think I know what's going on. Right? Mm -hmm. So from a grant writing and an artist statement standpoint, people don't want to hear a long-winded narrative about how you got to where you are. You know, I don't want to know about your childhood. Just like, give me what I want. You know, who you are, what you do, and why you do it. And if it's engaging, then I will read further down. So that's the inverted triangle of journalism, um, front-loading information. Um, The old Oxford method of essay writing. I learned this in high school in my town of Clare, Michigan, population 3,000 people, um, from Mr. Wolf was his name. And uh, the structure is three parts. Tell them what you're going to say. Say it. Tell them what you said. So if you apply that to the inverted triangle method of journalism, then what you get is the most important information is at the top of telling them what you're going to say. I'm going to talk to you about what I believe in. Because I believe in this. I write music that is like this. In the middle section, you provide some details. And as you move down through that, you provide them more details of which they may or may not care about. But if it's an engaging story, they will keep reading. And then somewhere along the line, the whole triangle inverts. And now you're talking about things that they recognize but are becoming more relevant. And so the triangle expands out and they're like, okay, this sounds familiar. I believe you. And at the bottom, you tell them what you said. And hopefully by the time you get there, what's happened is that at the top, they didn't believe you. And in the middle, you gave them enough detail that they do. So at the bottom, when you tell them the exact same thing you said at the top, they are all in. And they're saying, yes, I believe this. And that's that transformational moment, you know, and the, the the talk I've done in videos with Ira Glass, where he's like, all storytelling boils down to taking a person, subjecting them to something and having them be fundamentally changed. That's what makes an engaging story. And I think uh, that translates very well to writing an artist statement, you know, mm-hmm. just like, it's so easy. You're just like important stuff at the top. Mm-hmm. Tell them what you're going to say. Say it. Tell them what you said. When you're done, they'll be convinced. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Go on home. Did, so I, it just struck me as you're saying that, that that totally 
should apply to music, too. Good music changes you by the end of it. Huh? Oh, gosh. No? Uh, Are you going to disagree with me on that? (laughs) I I might, actually. Okay. okay, Tell me your thoughts. Okay, I'm glad that we've, like, waded our way out of, like, the professional stuff and we're getting into music so (laughs) now it's gonna get real messy (laughs) this is where the swords come out all right the composer quest yeah the quest has begun um (laughs) yes and no you know look at like the sonata form or like uh any of those orchestral forms where you're like bringing the theme like here is the essential information like you need to know this A thing and this B thing. And then we're going to talk about that a bit. So you've got your crucial information at the top. And then we delve into the details at the bottom. We do some like developments. And then uh, uh, later on, we revisit those developments. And they start to pan out. And now you're hearing something familiar, but it's been developed. And then by the end, we do the recapitulation uh, where you're like, oh, my gosh, I remember this theme. I've been transformed. It's amazing. And then after like all of the orgasms and stuff, you're sort of like chill out with the coda you know it's like the coda is basically like the cigarette of uh sonata lego form am i right i mean come on yeah like you're done and you're just enjoying the extra stuff as you reflect upon the journey that you had um and that's fine if it's what you want to do but it's rooted in a historic and cultural practice that is not of our culture. And we've been like beating that dead horse for hundreds of years and song form, ABA form and all this stuff. We're just like, this is the way it goes. And what really blows my mind is that crossing over from art to communication And what we use these days is, I think, what people should be considering, which is to say that at a point when the symphonic form was developed, it was about expression, but it was also about communication of values. You know, this is what I believe, this is what I hear, this is how I express emotion. And now we've moved over into social media and these new technologies that allow us to construct both artwork and narratives in ways that are completely devoid of the structure of classical music. Mm. And so to force students, for those professors to force them or impose on them to say, you must create within the constructs of this canon, I think is absurd and damaging because you're not allowing them to live in their own time. You're trying to tell them to live in a time a hundred years ago, 200 years ago to say the fugue, you must do a fugue. And I would say, show me the modern fugue. You know what the modern fugue is now? I don't know. What? Now you're on the hook, Charlie. Uh, Give me modern. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna constrain okay. this a little bit. All right. If you had to pick one social media platform that was most similar to to a fugue, the fugue, 
I would say Twitter. Perfect. Because yes. there's Can a conversation I get a going on. <laughs> What's that? Conversation going on. Yep. Back and forth. There are themes. Yes. But hashtags. the themes, hashtags unite them. A hashtag is basically the primary theme of a fugue. You're like, this is the hashtag. Everything about this are the layers in the counterpoint and the harmony. It's all organized about this. But there are themes that then have contrary themes. And the threads can run simultaneously but separate. And they chase each other. But I, I definitely think that Twitter is the modern instantiation of the musical form of the fugue. Hmm. This is such a great follow-up episode to the one I just posted, which is yeah. an interview with a guy who studies Baroque music, and he wrote this big symphony and uh, big fugue at the end, too. So we talked about fugue. Oh, so Gross. What? <laughs> Sorry. Do I do I get a, a segment in here where I get to complain about all the things that I hate about music? Is there like like a sure. a, a hate we, dumpster okay, that we'll, I can throw all we'll, of my um, like We'll do some garbage collection at the end. Okay, good. The Noah's Maybe hate good or bad. segment. I'll make a little okay. theme song for it. Or you could. Okay. No, I'm trying to, I'm still um, <laughs> little hint of things to come with Noah's yeah. intro theme. Oof. Although people listening already heard it. Because we're bending time right now. We're totally bending time. Because so it's the future. Yeah. Yeah. So, maybe we could talk a little bit about your art. I have noticed the theme with your art and music that... It is like smaller pieces that are super creative and they're like lots of small art projects, projects. like gift making. Oh yeah. And like <laughs> Yeah, it's yeah. it's cool. I'm I'm a squirrely, squirrely person and I've found a lot of support and momentum in building creative communities that have nothing to do with sound. Those people care about sound and music but that might not be the way that they come to me and as a creative individual like uh, you know I when I introduce myself I say I'm a composer and multimedia artist and all the multimedia portion means is that I have a very intense and troublesome relationship with like synesthetic sounds and visuals and things. So I can't really separate the two. You know what I mean? Like it's like an image that I create on Instagram, which is just like a picture of my cat or something like that has a lot of extra contextual information in it for me. Hmm. And so it's a personal expression and I really don't care if other people get it. You know, like I recognize what they might get, but there's a whole other subset of stuff that's meaningful to me. And so that's where like Instagram and social media, uh, everything from visuals and graphic design to the words that I choose when I tweet things like hmm. I love words. 
And in a lot of ways, the more I move forward, the less important music is, the more important sound is, and the more important how sound maps itself to language and visuals. Hmm. So when people are like, oh, you're a composer, they always like fall into dots and stems on paper and instruments and things like that. And I, I feel very stressed out and constricted by those things. And so, you know, when you ask me to send you some audio of pieces that I was working on, didn't send you anything recent, you know, mm-hmm. like it's all older stuff. And the reason is because I haven't written a new piece of music in eight months haven't even tried have no projects and that's fine i don't even care because that's not what i'm trying to do i've been exploring other things where my instagram images are a creative process that i'm making images that mean something to me and mean something different to the audience that likes them i'm okay with that I'm uh, woodshedding, as we call it, you know, practicing. And it's not in composition, it's in physical objects. So I've been like building up my woodworking skills hmm. to like build physical objects that represent sound or execute sound. Hmm. You know, those sorts of things I find more engaging than saying, well, I guess I need to crank out another string quartet and then find a people to record it and stuff like that. Like, I just don't care about it. I don't like it. It doesn't inspire me. But every day when I get home, I totally enjoy going out to the shed and writing up plans, sketches and building weird contraptions that make sound. Like your ping pong table. The ping pong table is a perfect example. Yeah. Uh, the last two projects that I did were ping pong tables. One in conjunction with Peter Oaken Thompson and Andrew McGuffey. It's in Union Depot. Uh, it's a 500 pound steel ping pong table. It's a permanent work there. So if you show up to the Union Depot in St. Paul, you can play this ping pong table. Um, there's these under like curved under pieces. And if you wrap your fist on it, you'll get like a maybe not a perfect triad, but you'll get three pitches like a high, mid, low. And that's the sonic structure of it. Also, the net is cut out of a sheet of aluminum. And when the ball ricochets off of it, it resonates And so you get these like really long, I mean, it's a very resonant space in general. Mm, Yeah. But if you play that table and you hit it in the right place, it'll ring for like a good 20, 25 seconds. Just like this very subtle, like, and as as it rolls off, you have to like get your ear really close to it. For a person like me, that's very meaningful. Like, it's a subtle personal experience surrounded by a game that anybody can approach, mm-hmm. which is the opposite of the classical music world, which is very not 
inclusive or engaging you know they struggle with that all the time we're trying to fix yeah. that right we're always like how yeah. can we get people to enjoy this thing and be like well don't make it so uptight and shitty you know <laughs> hey newsflash <laughs> like uh <laughs> you are the cultured equivalent of a fraternal douchebag <laughs> like you are the intellectual equivalent of a jerk you know you can huh. edit that out if you want well no that this is i this just is a that's good how I feel real about discussion the classical they're just like oh why don't people love us we're like important and smart and doesn't don't people want to be smart and be like sure they want to be smart but they don't want to feel like you're the judge of that you know mm-hmm. they don't want that what are your <laughs> ideas for like, do you have some ideas of how it could be more inclusive? Because oh, man, I have so many ideas. <laughs> yeah. Um, I go back and forth on this. So, okay, we, we've all heard these discussions about should there be live tweeting in a concert? Should people be able to get up and leave in the middle of something? Like, are we allowed to move? I do, as a personal statement feel that so my artist statement you know going back to the inverted triangle mm-hmm. thing um you is have a good one. <laughs> i tell people i'm like i write electroacoustic and multimedia works that are equally at home in the concert hall as they are in the dance club and i write music because i believe that it shouldn't move people just emotionally but physically also And so when I flip that upside down, you know, in my artist statement speech, I say, because I believe that music should move people, not just emotionally, but physically, I write works that are equally at home in the concert hall and the dance club, electroacoustic and multimedia works. My name is Noah Kiesecker. I'm a composer. You know, that I feel that there's nothing more inhumane than to have a person pay $35 for a ticket to like check five. And when the brass are blasting and everything is just like blowing up and amazing, I'm supposed to sit there in my suit coat and tie and not move. I would absolutely love it if I could stand up and like give a solid fist pump and the like Verdi Requiem when that like four on the floor is happening. I tell people all the time, like Verdi Requiems, you know, like that that the big like bass drum. How does that one go? Jump on jump on jump on jump on bum 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 jump. Sorry, please edit this out. I'm not a good singer. Do you know what I'm talking about though? Yeah, yeah. The big bass drum thing. Yeah. It's like the oldest four on the floor you've ever heard. And I have to sit there with my arms crossed and just nod lightly like, hmm, hmm, fine, (laughs) yes. And there is no way that music developed into that. I mean, it, it did develop into constraint, but it did not arrive from constraint it arrived from like 
the communication of audio into your ears. If you imagine how do you synchronize numerous people, how do you synchronize a community in the fastest way possible? By our five senses. If you take a hundred people and put them in a room together, what is the fastest way you can get them all to do the same thing? It's Sister. not by taste. It's not by smell. It's not by touch. It's either by sight or by sound, right? And not everyone was going to be looking at in the same direction. So, And yeah, if you <clears throat> close their eyes, sound is the most immediate, fastest way to get a large amount of people to react instantaneously. And bringing this back around. Instant emotional. And instant emotional. This is visceral. We feel this together. Mm -hmm. And so the thing that I rail against about classical music in the work that I do that I'm moving more toward is to think that works that I love, my favorite composers, and the ones that just like rip my heart out, I would prefer to listen to them at home in headphones where I can react as I wish than I would to go to an orchestra and sit in a hall and hear it live and be shackled to my chair because of social norms. Mm -hmm. You know, it makes me barf a little bit in my mouth. <laughs> I feel like See, it I'm, doesn't injustice. I'm on the, I'm kind of on the opposite spectrum in some ways because Whenever I'm recording a concert of my own music or something, yeah, I always record it because, you know, you want for the future uh -huh. a recording to have. And whenever I do that, I'm like really aware of any sounds going on outside the music. And that's like, I guess, the perfectionist in me. But do but you like them or dislike them? Uh, the noise in the audience? Yeah. Dislike. <laughs> yeah you want purity yes you want purity. that's my it's i realize it's silly but what's silly that you want that level of perfection mm -hmm. oh in my yeah. recordings yeah i think that's silly sort of no actually i don't i'm i'm back well, and forth on this this is gonna get because we can talk more about like my actual music is yes. very much inspired by actually this dialogue between perfection mm. and imperfection and live versus constructed. Like that's right. actually, I think what's most interesting mm. about blah, 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 professional development and <laughs> man, the institutions are broken <laughs> and blah, blah, blah. But yeah. you know, in the end, I'm, I'm just a guy with opinions sure. uh, that I want to impose on other people. But, <laughs> um, so well, here as a composer, like that's what we're coming down to, I think, yeah. about my music, that if you listen to it, it is a struggle between absolute control and perfection on the side that you're talking about and a desire to let go. And, and I'm both mm -hmm. of those. I'm like this Apollonian yeah. and Dionysian like struggle between those. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I like. It's terrifying. Yeah. I've Listening to your music, it's kind of like, would you describe it as glitch musics in a way? Like, there's a lot of glitchy sounds in your percussion, which I think are really cool. Yeah. 
and like twitchy things. It's like, but it's like very precise sounds. I looked out at the crowd. I looked at mystical, mystical chair I heard that rhythm. I heard that drum and rhythm. I heard their overtones. Well, I can use that rhythm. Can use that rhythm. Can use that fifty thousand watts rhythm. Rhythm where you don't need, don't need the, the, the drum. So I would say, pass that record. Pass that record. Now open it up. I was somebody else. I attribute a lot of it to that, as I said, the Apollonian and Dionysian thing, where like one of them is very structured and constrained, and the other is very free and flowing, and it's a personality issue about where I'm really particular. I want everything to be perfect. This is where I moved from acoustic chamber music into electronic music because I could not tolerate the randomness of humans that I couldn't control. It Hmm. frustrated me about how notation was so inaccurate to my desires. You know, it'd be the equivalent of... A, a writer writing a book, you know, and having someone read it and having them read it and replace words to be like, yeah, I don't really like the word excited. So I'm going to replace it with the word enticed. And you're, you just, you're like, no, that's not what I meant. That's hmm. the equivalent of a composer's ideal in their mind and having a human interpret and notation. Hmm. That's like, I had so much anxiety about this, you know? Huh. And so when I came into electronic music, that was the enticing thing where I was like, wow, I'm going to make it the way it's supposed to sound. And it will sound the way I want it to sound. And I don't have to rely on anybody else. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the downside is that electronic music is super alienating to most audiences. It's hard to engage with. And it's also egotistical and self-absorbed in a lot of ways, because as soon as you move into that area of like, this is the way it sounds, then you're focusing in on yourself. And what you lose is the ability to connect with an audience that might be different from you. And I am stressed out and have anxiety about the fact that I'm going to make it the way I want it. And then nobody's going to like it. It's not going to reach anyone. And then I'm like, why am I doing this? Hmm. <laughs> am I doing it for me or am I doing it for them? And it's both. So I don't know. I, in the audio files I sent you, there's a piece in there called Alchemia which is basically like a granular synthesis piece of like anvil sounds and metal things. Nobody likes that piece nobody even my friends my closest friends they're like that sucks they don't like it at all i'm the only person on the planet that likes that piece and i feel very strongly about it and so from a professional development standpoint i like the piece but it's not right for other people so i just have to say this is for me and that's that struggle where i'm like this is precise i constructed 
what I consider to be a very engaging work of art that is perfect in its instantiation and no one else likes it except me. So, so what is it that may, that is appealing to you? Do you uh, think that other people don't find appealing? It's a process piece. It's process driven, you know, so it's like mathematically like structured in a way that I find is interesting and I enjoy. This is another thing. So we're getting to that perfection imperfection thing where you say, I don't like making recordings where there's extraneous noise. Mm -hmm. Pretty much every piece that I've ever done has what from an external standpoint would be considered noise or static. And it's like a middle finger to polish, like cultural and societal polish where not to pick on pop music, but production quality, everything Mm -hmm. has to be perfect and balanced and there are no mistakes in there anymore. Like, it's funny no... though because often they add a layer of noise to pop music now. No, no, no. They're not doing that for the fact of a mistake. They're doing it for a for functional aspect. True, that it makes it feel more connected. Right. That's basically but, adding a dither. I mean, you're talking about a dither, right? Uh, actually, well, I thought I think I've heard of like tape noise. Yeah frequencies being added yeah but that is compared to what i'm talking about totally different okay what that is is the equivalent of an instagram filter that's what that is they're like oh man i'm gonna add tape noise which is gonna make this look like a photo from 1985 or they're gonna Mm -hmm. be like i'm gonna add some vinyl scratches which is gonna make this look like a photo like a lomo photo from 1972 and that is not what i do but what i'm talking about is garbage (laughs) (laughs) like extraneous like fragments of sound that I could have edited out, but I leave them there. So there's a recording I sent you. It's from a theater production that myself and J. Anthony Allen composer and Josh Clausen did where we rescored Marat Saad, uh, the Peter Weiss play. And it's this very like dense digital sort of almost auto tuned like mm-hmm. vocoder chord, style vocoder style stuff. And the funny thing is that in the first portion it says Marat were poor. Those are the first three words, and Marat is pronounced without the T, hmm. and I pronounce it in the recording with the T, hmm. Marat we're poor and so there's like this slight percussive phonetic artifact that if you know how it's supposed to sound then it's bad you're like you did it wrong i could have fixed that and i didn't and i didn't fix it intentionally we're poor and the poor Marat don't make a 
choppy audio sample edits where there's a, a series of audio files and you can hear the background noise where there's like in the background Mm -hmm. and then it gets clipped off because it's a new sample and or you hear a click Mm. because i didn't even bother to like round it off Mm. like people would never hear in these podcast episodes by the way yeah because i'm I'm way too much because you're a pro (laughs) but the thing is like i could do that and i do do that in places but in one recording there will be places where i have edited something seamlessly to be totally smoothed over and perfect. And then two seconds later, I have left like this rough blunt edge as if I cut a piece of wood with a rip saw and left all like the plywood, like splinters hanging off that from a production standpoint would be appalling. If you went into all of my music and you approached it in this way, you said, I'm going to track and map really polished moments and really rough moments. You would find that there is a ratio between the two that's consistent and it's not by accident. I intentionally leave rough edges in the same way that if you go to a museum and you look at, you know, like a Rauschenberg piece, these multimedia things where like sheens of paint and then just like gobs of chunky wood stuff like splintering out. You don't look at it and say like, you should have sanded that down. You know, why would you go into an audio recording and expect everything to be perfectly constructed in a way that's like smooth i studied with doug gears um and he was the my main professor at university of minnesota great guy a lot of really good things to say and um he used to do these things where he would talk about like high mom moments he's like it's important to me that i always put something in my music that my mom will love (laughs) That if she hates all 20 minutes of this, like, operetta, there will be, like, 15 seconds that I know I've constructed intentionally so that she will hear it and she'll say, that was lovely. And he (laughs) called that his high mom moments. It's an Easter egg. Yeah. Oh, I put Easter eggs in my... So many Easter eggs. Uh, Doug Gears' Easter egg is his high mom. Mine, in a way, are the intentional rough edges that if you're a person that's into that, you'll find them. And if you're not of the same aesthetic inclination, they will bother you. Does does that make sense in Mm -hmm. a way? Like, yeah, I don't know. My Easter egg is that on each album I've done, I took a little sample from the previous one and put it on the next as like one part of a song. I see. It's like so precise. The- yeah. Your <laughs> Easter egg is like good. My Easter eggs are sloppier than that. Eh. But that's like sloppiness is an intention, mm-hmm. just like precision is an intention. And I think that's what I want to get at is that you can be both. 
Mm -hmm. and it's okay. And I feel like it's not accepted in the audio world as it is in the visual arts world. No. Yeah. Yeah. That's because I'm just thinking now of like, if someone does a sketch drawing or something, Mm -hmm. there's like definitely going to be areas that are not clean and neat. It's not unless you're doing it with a marker or something. Yeah. And that's like the best drawings i feel like like let's say it's a portrait of someone the most important features in a face are the ones that get the you know detail and polish maybe versus like the whatever the rest of their body or something yeah not as important to the piece of art yeah but we don't we don't get that nobody lets us i mean if you go to an exhibit uh there is this trend in visual arts where they are allowed to mount a show where the perfect works are hung on the wall right above the sketches and the imperfect works in the process and music composition. We don't have that luxury. We don't get it. Nobody wants it and nobody will accept it. The closest thing you can get to that, I think is the, remix community and the dj scene where people will put out stems that's as close to the artistic acceptability of process as we get anything beyond that totally unacceptable and it's archival so i remember i was in vienna on the uh, 50th anniversary of schoenberg's death It was very fascinating because they had all these displays of like his sketches of scores and like doodles and his erasers. And I was like, this is awesome. This means a lot to me. And this is only allowed in an archival standpoint. Yeah. But in the the art world, you can sell a sketch uh, by Matisse like where he basically was like, here's a sketch of my dog's poop that I saw this morning on the floor for thousands, tens of thousands of dollars. We don't have that luxury. I'm going to pay $50,000 for your stems. Well, they might do that for like Prince or somebody, but yeah, not for me. (laughs) (laughs) Not yet. At least. Yeah. Time to break in with a little promo for lynda.com. So we've been talking about the merits of unpolished music, but if you're a producer, you're often expected to have polished, perfect-sounding recordings. I've been checking out a Linda course on getting a perfect drum sound. Let me play you a clip from this course, which is called Drum Setup and Miking in the Studio with Ryan Hewitt. In this clip, you'll hear Ryan interview drum tech Ross Garfield about choosing the right drum and cymbal sounds for a recording. If we do a, a, a quicker tune probably put up a different snare drum. The rule of thumb is sort of the faster the track, the smaller the snare drum. Right. Right? So you, you'll get, it sounds more aggressive. It, it speaks well when it's being played fast. And it speaks quickly, which you need to get out of the way of the tempo of the song, right? Right. But if you have like a ballady thing, you can have a bigger, fatter, slower sounding drum. Right. With, with more sustain and more right. decay. With more, and also it gives you that low end thing that you kind of want in that sort of track, right? Right. And I, and I also picked the darker cymbals because I think you'll be able to hear the drums better through the overheads. So that way we won't have to EQ the overheads to compensate for the brightness of the cymbals. Mm-hmm. 
So uh, these are all pretty dark. These are all hand-hammered uh, Turkish cymbals. So now, you know, not everyone has access to, you know, the Ross Garfield Library of Drums. Um, so say they have, you know, a cup, one snare, one kick drum. How can they achieve different uh, tones and timbres out of that single set of drums to, okay. to be more appropriate for whatever they're recording? Right. So if you need a, a bigger sounding kick drum and you have a smaller kick drum, it's all about the heads, the tuning of the heads, and your muffling. That's where the art comes in. You can get access to courses like this for free for 10 days by visiting lynda.com quest. That's L-Y-N-D-A. Now, back to my talk with Noah Kiesecker. I wanted to ask you about your Tone Goblin oh, yeah. music and Fun. video. Because that when you were mentioning earlier that like the visuals always have a music or sound like element uh -huh. to you creatively. Yeah. Like that one's did the music and video come at the same time or Yeah. How'd... I was very inspired by a odd little work by an artist that I really like, Takashi Murakami, that he's very like anime oriented. They used to have a large sculpture of his in in the lobby of the walker. So these big eyed anime characters um very colorful very polished and highly produced but this was a tiny little piece it was only about like eight minute uh eight minutes high <laughs> eight inches high and it was one of those little characters and it was sitting on top of this sort of like egg thing and if you open the egg up there was supposedly like a cd in there like a cd player and so there was music inside of it and it was like this quirky little monster like with these big eyes and its hands up and it just had this like delightfully playful and light and very saturated colorful way about it but also mischievous and so what i did was i wrote the audio for tone goblin as a response to this tiny little sculpture that's in the collection of the wiseman art museum then i wanted to create a video work because that's what i was really interested in and so I had the audio track done. And then I was like, how do I visualize this as closely as possible to what my mind sees? And that's where the video came from. Heaven forbid you ever went through and tried to count the edits in it. But it's obscene. I mean, it's that's like, like every single beat. Yeah, of the music. like fractions <laughs> of seconds. I mean... I would be terrified to submit it to a psychologist because they would like put me in a hospital in two <laughs> seconds. They'd be like, no normal human would ever do this. <laughs> I mean, it's so intense. bit of an artist that I don't know the name of anywhere, but 
uh, this person did like black and white, very like pixel art maybe, uh-huh. but sounds that perfectly fit it. It was all noise yeah. sounds and they seem to go so well together. And I noticed that with yours too, like there were sections that were colored that seemed to have a little more tone, mm-hmm. color. Versus like noise sections that were there black about and texture, white. There were like yeah. the flatness and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, I used to... So Takashi Murakami, the guy that the sculpture is based on, philosophically talks about this idea of super flat, uh, super flatness. It's this idea that you can have something that appears very surface and shallow like a gorgeous model in like a polished thing and like lots of photoshop and like that's surface but there is within that surface this sort of infinite depth it's like an atomic look at shallowness to say that the super flat is it's appealing and instantly accessible but if you want to, you can dig into it and you can find a whole like deep universe in minutia. And, you know, I feel like this is what minimalism was getting at in a way where they're like, I can do something simple that's very surface and enjoyable. And in the long run, there's a profound depth to it. Like, I think that would be a predecessor to the Murakami's super flat kind of philosophy and that's very appealing to me because i think it makes the connection emotionally the dance movement part of it visceral and it also has the potential to make an intellectual connection with people which i also value Mm -hmm. um so when you were mentioning this synesthetic side to like how you is that something you experience with like sound and visuals like a very Vividly, or uh, is it like... I don't have perfect pitch. I I wish that would be awesome, I think. Although my friends that do say it's a curse, but whatever. But I definitely... I believe, actually, that most artists, like really passionate artists, all have synesthetic interactions with things that they don't realize. Like if you, So if you read a lot of research about people, the synesthetes and that sort of thing, you find out that a large portion of them live the first 20 years of their life or so feeling weird and not knowing what's going on until they find out that it's a thing. And it's a spectrum. It's not you are this or that, like you're a letters and colors person, or you're like a sound and taste person. There's like a total, I mean, it's your brain. Come on. It's not locked up in boxes. It's just like this widespread. And I do believe that artists that are intensely connected to the, like emotionally connected to their art form, they have some form of synesthesia. And that's what mine is. I mean, I can very certainly say that, uh, reading books is weird. <laughs> like words and letters. Uh, sometimes I double check myself. Or I'm like, hey, what color is this text right here? And people will be like, eh, it's black. I'm like, are you sure? But like, yeah, I'm like, okay. Um, or 
I have a very strong correlation with smell, you know, mm. like things trigger, like things smell like stuff, visuals mm. or audio, you know, um, like what would be an example of that? Well, some easy ones that I think a lot of people associate with it, like the bassoon, you know, like the What's... audio quality of the bassoon is a mossy log. Like it's a damp, huh. it's like a, a forest after like a gentle rain. Like everything from like peaty and cedar to like mold and things like that. Like I think that's pretty basic, right? If that's what that's, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. I, huh? Maya will be happy to hear that. Yeah, it's lovely. That's a it's good delicious. smell. I suppose. Yeah. Oh my gosh, it's so good. And it doesn't always have to be wet. It can be dry, you know. But that's the thing is that it has a characteristic which is not as precise as like clinical synesthesiology or whatever. Let's put it this way. There are some people that are synesthetes that have like 2020 synesthesia where they're like, Nope. Every single R is a perfect like hex code of yellow. Right. That's mm-hmm. 2020. Yeah. And then there's a majority of artists, I think that are inspired by what would be bad vision of synesthetic senses, which is to say, yeah, I don't know that a bassoon smells like a morel mushroom in the Western hemisphere in October, <laughs> but I can say that it smells like mushrooms, <laughs> right? <laughs> and to to say that that's not worthy or important is like scientists being dumb. And I love science, but my science brain and my art brain says, you know, come on, like recognize that some of these impassioned reactions and things that we do are based on these unexplained correlations that our brains make that drive the creativity and drive the meaning. And I I think they transcend boundaries like other people that enjoy those art forms like classical music that when you orchestrate certain textures, you know, and use certain instruments, they trigger things in your brain that are not just about sound. They're about, visuals that's where the thing is for me where i'm like when i hear something i just cannot not see something like it's impossible Mm. like i never i maybe i see black or something or white but i can't think of an instance where somebody plays me something and all i see is white or all i see is black there's always something there and same with like smells and tastes and like textures you know like the way your skin crawls when you hear something how do you explain that yeah what do you tell someone yeah i you're like i always get that with like the weirdest it's like must be a really specific frequency range where it's like scratches on a jacket just make me like that that's like the chalkboard reaction for most people but and there's zippers or any of that stuff (laughs) i mean like my coworker nikki the sound of styrofoam will melt her down. She's like, I can't, she's like, Oh, I like that. Or like sound. a, or a, like a balloon, like that of a balloon. Oh, that's a great sound. She me. will <laughs> lose it. Huh? You know? Weird. And in a way that is, I, and I don't know all the research behind this because all the stuff that I've read is borderline scientific, but mostly speculative. But the fact of the matter is there is a correlation, an emotional correlation between pure sound and a physiological reaction that your skin reacts 
and your heart and your blood pressure reacts. And I pile all that into like a synesthetic quality that humans have. And artists are exceptional at not just observing it. Actually, in a lot of ways, they're not good at observing it, but they are good at capitalizing on it and converting it into a method of communication where they're sort of like figure out that I feel this way physically when I hear the sound. I can use that and construct that and then play sound for other people and then they will feel the thing that I feel. That's super wildly intense to me. Your question was, how does that play into my work? And my answer is, it's like a weird, uh, like a histogram. You know what a histogram is? Like, yeah. It's like a, basically like a graph of like, the color spectrum and in various levels of intensity where things like peak, uh, I imagine mine as a histogram of that where I'm like, yep, I know places where it's so precise and intense that I, I could answer that question in the dark and other places where it's pretty hazy. You know? Are you talking about like sound frequencies? All, all, immerse, all senses. All mixed. senses. Yeah. Cause I would say like perfect pitch is a peak. That's an area where it's absolute for people. I mean, that's what freaks people out about perfect pitch, right? They're like, mm-hmm. this seems intangible. How could that possibly be? You'd be like, well, I don't know, but you know the difference between 440 and 441. Mm-hmm. And that person doesn't. And 441 feels like eating a sea urchin. And 440 feels like eating filet mignon. So what are you going to do about that? You know what I mean? Like they don't know. And then, so they judge you about it. And I think like that, that thing where you say, here are places where the resolution is crisp and here are places where it's not, is not to say one is better than the other, you know? Mm -hmm. And sometimes like having a hazy perspective is better than having a type A crisp perspective on things. So that's what I'm getting at. The, The histogram thing is saying, look, here's a value structure of where your precision is and where your haziness is. And I think if you internally analyze that for yourself and then work with it, you will be more true to what makes you feel good than what makes your professor feel good. Cause they'll be like, Oh, I want more of this. And you're like, yeah, that feels gross. It tastes like sea urchin. <laughs> you know? I'm going to go like 15 clicks to the left. I'm going to make me some like sushi or something. Hmm. Not to make you into a lab rat here, but if I were to just play a random chord on oh, the piano, man. would you, I'll just do that. Wait, wait, you wait, tell... wait. How many are you going to play? I just have my hand in a random arrangement. And you want me to what? And I, I'm curious what, if there's a, a sense, okay, other than sound, a sense. Am I supposed to just go with my initial yeah. thing? Can you do it again? What would I do with that? I, I would put it in like blues. Uh, it's a very actually particular blue and yellow combination, like striped. 
kind of like, um, you know, Messian, if you've ever read about his like synesthesia things, like he, I mean, he did some in terms of tones and things, but he also described his synesthesia in terms of patterns where he would be, they were more like stained glass windows where he'd say this thing here, this sound of this orchestration is like bands of blue and yellow on the bottom. And then like a field of green with like spots of orange in it. Um, Hmm. which I always found really interesting because it's so specific and geometric. Um, and so that was very like blue and yellow bands with like, holes in the middle of it and part of that's the interval structure that you could hear you know and that there's like a gap between the intervals in your thumb and your forefinger which are just you don't necessarily know what the intervals are but you can feel the frequency gaps like Mm -hmm. easily like I had my eyes closed. I was like looking up at the ceiling with my eyes closed and you were like, there's a cluster. And I could not determine what the interval between your thumb and your forefinger was instantly because of the cluster, but I could perceive and understand the frequency gap in it. Mm -hmm. So if you imagine on a, like a geometric, like graphic structure that there's a block in the middle that's missing, and you map that onto an architecture of a building, then what you get is like a lower level and three empty floors of like a balcony. And then like four empty floors of like a brutalist, like block structure on top where the frequencies are close together. And then the resonant frequencies on top of that are this sort of like ornamentations and whatnot. And those are the kind of visuals that I get from that, where you're like, and I am not listening to pitch as much as I'm listening to densities. Do you think like, as you were learning music theory, like your perceptions would change? Like, cause I mean, I, for me, I'm not being synesthetic it changes the way I hear music, but I think in a way that like puts it in more of my language part of my brain mm. sometimes. Yeah. Ah, uh, gosh, I don't know. I'm, I was never, I wasn't so good at music theory. <laughs> I mean, I was fine. Like I got by, but I had to try a little harder than I think some people. And even now I don't, I know friends of mine that, you know, as we say, have better ears than others where, you know, better at dictation and better in at harmonic dictation and melodic things like that. But that's another area where I think the music theory was, is interesting to me in order to ascribe a label to a thing that my ears perceive, whether it's necessary or not. I mean, we, nobody needs to tell us that the music existed long before the theories and the notation, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then later on, people tried to build a formal structure around it to understand it, um, which I admire because science. Yay, science. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's my belief that you should come at it that the theory is secondary 
and it's to be taken with a grain of salt. Yeah. You know, it's like Shanker. Hmm. How do you feel about Shanker? I haven't ever studied it. Yeah. So don't I don't start. know. It's Sh- I hate Shanker. Shanker is just is that I, like that's the like the theory of, of trying to explain everything about trying to wrap everything up into a, an easy it's basically can I explain all of Western music as a relationship between tonic and dominant? Hmm. That's how I would boil it down. Huh. That it all boils down to like one five one. Anyway. Hmm. So I, I talk so much. Hey, that's this is maybe we should have done talk. like a multi point series. We I probably should have. We have I'm sorry. I mean, I would talk with you about synesthesia for Oh, that's really interesting to me. I I feel like I'm trying to, now that you mention it, I'm like, oh man, who else could I pull in? Because I definitely, I I can hear in people's music, I believe, people that are more synesthetic than others. Hmm. I think that it's like... What do you think the characteristics are? I, I, I have no idea. It's not something I can quantify, but it's definitely a thing like... I would say it's the equivalent of, you know, that other stuff. They talk about pheromones and like in humans, they still can't really quantify it or measure it, but they acknowledge that it exists. That's how I feel where I listen to music. I'm like, I can't structure this, but I just have that weird sort of like sense that I listen to some music and it, it has something that is, both technical and like corporeal, like physical, and the two are connected in a way that other people aren't. And I think you can feel that in some music. Hmm. That's as close as I'm going to get for you right now. <laughs> Aside from like queuing like up, queuing up tracks and being like, yeah. "All right, what about this?" I'd be like, mm, "No." Be like, "What about this?" Uh, yeah. Like, but well, we maybe we'll have that. you back on the show with some example. I don't know. Yeah, that'd be weird. That'd be, yeah. Because I feel like you have a secret code that you, a secret language that you know, maybe. (laughs) Yeah, it's called, it's called ADHD, uh, manic depressive, bipolar, uh, (laughs) uh, yeah, schizophrenia, all those things. That's my secret mental cocktail. Oh. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I'm totally normal. (laughs) <laughs> um what else do you what know mary beth hutland from the u of m because it was name pretty cool I, I had her on the show and she is yeah. synesthetic in in the way of seeing color yeah with sound and it was just like really interesting discussion about like how her own music too yeah like when when you listen to a piece of yours Okay, I'm going to pick one of the random ones on my list here. Riffendor. If you were to listen back to that, do you know what kind of sense or visual thing would pop into your head? Uh, It's a very flat piece. It's very red. It's like a very like maroon red ish kind of piece. 
I mean, I like it because the textures and like, it's very crisp. It's like, if you take a visual image and you turn up the sharpness on it, you know, you can yeah. like crank up the sharpness and then it gets like, it feels crisp. And if you turn it up too high, then you're like, it's you so can... sharp and it looks fake. Yeah. It has sharp, the sharpness is turned up on it. And that has a lot of like really interesting, like shadows and secondary images around it that I dig, but otherwise it's just sort of I've used it many many times as a basis for other things like a dynamic baseline upon which I will build other stuff but as a standalone piece it doesn't feel like it was constructed as a standalone piece because it's too static and flat <laughs> I have a listener question for you. Oh, man, I'm um, so happy. Yeah. I feel like I should so, have been tweeting this whole time, and I wasn't, because <laughs> I, I can't think and tweet at the same time, apparently. But go ahead. Um, so, Dan Wheeler was wondering about your piece, Carver. Do you know, um, what's his handle? Do you know? Uh, at know? Dan on Keys. Dan on Keys. Wait, has he only tweeted once? Um, does he have a picture of Yoda? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> I don't oh, think he uses him. Twitter okay. too much. So he's not big on Twitter, but I am going to tweet him right now while you ask me this question. Nice. So he was asking about your piece, Carver. Yeah. And he noticed how the sounds of the voice line up really well with the sound effect type things. My head kept knocking on things. She liked necklaces made of turquoise and long pendant earrings. She smiled, and I thought that was the last of it. She clasped her arms with her hands. He shot himself in the mouth. Doctor, your days are numbered. Little things like that. Who won the fight? I sure as hell wouldn't call it love. And uh, he was wondering how you did that. At Dan on Keys, I'm answering your question. All caps. Right now. Yeah. So nice. the, yeah, the Carver thing, I am a huge Raymond Carver fan, the writer. And I found a recording of Raymond Carver reading his story, What We Talk About When We Talk About Love. If you ever come across a book or anything titled What We Talk About When We Talk About Blank, that person is referencing Raymond Carver's short story. And he is considered one of the major innovators that like set the bar for short story fiction writing in America in the mm. 20th century. So anyway, I didn't start out thinking of it in terms of his last name. I started out thinking of it in terms of Carver as the way you carve sound, you know? Mm -hmm. And so the thing about mapping all of those weird sounds to the voice is that I started with all the, like, this huge palette of samples. And I was like, how do I carve gestures and lines out of completely disparate and unrelated sounds? Like, how can I put a spoon click next to a wood scrape, next to a sigh, next to a rock tumble, 
next to a salt shaker, you know, all of these things that shouldn't belong together, but that if you craft them as discrete moments in the right way, then you can carve contours out of something hard, which is when we think of a brute force sample, it's like a concrete, you know, music concrete, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we're like, we don't do anything. We just take the brick of audio and plop it down. Uh, and it's a, speaking of composer quest, it's kind of a pixelated approach. You know, mm -hmm. if you take like a chunk of audio and you lay it brick by brick and you lay enough of them and then you zoom back far enough, you increase resolution. So the idea being if you can carve gestures and smoothness and contours out of bricks of samples, if you structure them in the right way. So anyway, I was like, okay, so I'm going to take all of Raymond Carver, the story, and I'm going to block out the segments that I want. Then I mapped those onto or vice versa, the sounds onto the language where you see like the landscape in the foreground and the landscape in the background. The afternoon sun was like a presence in this room, the spacious light of ease and generosity. We could have been anywhere, somewhere enchanted. We raised our glasses again and grinned at each other like children who had agreed on something forbidden. I'll tell you what real love is, Mel said. I mean, I'll give you a good example, and then you can draw your own conclusions. He poured more gin into his glass. He added an ice cube and a sliver of lime. Okay, I have one final question for you. Okay. It's a question chain that's been going on. Ooh. So the previous person I interviewed asked a question for you. Oh, yeah. Which is, if you had one day to write music for the six most important people in your life to play, musicians or not, who would they be and what would the music be like? That's a lot of information to process. Can we pause? Sure. Okay. <laughs> I didn't think about it in terms of the most important people because that's cruel <laughs> That is <laughs> to like take everyone I know and put them in an order. But what I did think was, uh, this is how I went. So I would write a piece of music for my dad because he is super tone deaf, but very rhythmic. And the one thing that I remember that everybody hates about me is my finger tapping. And I got that from him growing up. You know, he went to military academy. And so he would be like on the kitchen counter. It was always like. And he knows nothing of music. And he was always tapping these great drum core things that were just internalized. And I would love to write a piece for him that was like a percussion piece that gave him that performance experience that means so much to me and let him experience it. Yeah. One, That's same cool. thing with my mom. My mom, uh, not musically trained, visually inclined, like a very good drawer, um, but has a fantastic voice and asks me the stupidest questions about how to sing. She's like, well, how do I sing along with this thing? 
on the radio. I'm like, just do it. And she's like, but, but I don't feel right because it's not like refined and polished. I'm like, don't let that ruin a good thing. So I'd write a piece for my mom. That was a voice piece that was just all about not getting hung up on officialness, but just using this natural talent that she has. So mom and dad. Two, I'd write a piece for violinist in Baltimore, D.C. called Min Sun Choi. And uh, another violinist friend of mine, Hannah Murray, very special, talented friends of mine, of whom I have promised that I would write music for them. And I haven't done it. And that's dumb from a career standpoint for myself and cruel and inconsiderate of their desire to perform something of mine. So that's four. Um, I would write something for myself because I'm not much of a performer these days. And I don't give myself that opportunity because of like time and ego and anxiety and things like that. But I think that's important to give yourself permission to emote and express. I write a piece for myself and I would love to write something. This would be a dream, but in my most current work, I'm trying to move music to more physical objects and uh, publicly accessible. So like these last two pieces I did that were ping pong table, table tennis based things are about that where anybody can approach a ping pong table and feel like it's okay that's kind of a joy and engagement level that you don't find anywhere in classical music. Nothing you do. It doesn't matter how much marketing money you throw at it. Nothing is going to come close to the joy that uh, this little kid, um, Alonzo, in Union Depot, where I have a ping pong table installed. Uh, I was in there one day, like, putting ping pong balls in it. It's a public table. It's there 24-7. And he's like six-year-old kid that was waiting for a bus with his mom. And he walks up and he's like, hey, do you want to play ping pong with me? I'm like, yeah, I do. And so I played ping pong with this like random, bold six-year-old kid named Alonzo around a piece of work that I created to do exactly that with strangers. I don't know if I could quantify any other performance experience that comes close to that satisfaction. And so that's my most current goal, creating quote unquote musical compositions that are embodied in a way that a stranger that I may or may not ever meet will feel confident and curious about engaging and performing like music for strangers. That's it. That is a great the, Mom, dad, like, yeah, that's two friends that I've answer. neglected, myself, and everyone um, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. So now oh. you have to ask a question to the next person. Oh, gosh. Um, I saw something. I favorited something on Twitter today. I think I'm going to try to reiterate. This was a tweet from Nerd Nerdcore. She made this really pithy tweet that said, fun fact, you can both love and criticize something. That means the world to me <laughs> because I recognize that when people love something, they tend to be super defensive about it. And then they become blinded to positive criticism or just dialogue. So my question would be, what is something in the music world 
the world in general that you feel passionately about, that you love, but you also feel critical? Maybe kind of like a guilty pleasure. Could be that. Could be guilty pleasure. Could Mm -hmm. be, yeah, I like, I'm supposed to hate this, but I love it. Yeah. (laughs) Right? Yeah. I think we're at the point where we get to hear your intro theme oh, for the podcast. Oh man, I don't know. I don't know, Charlie. I'm... Okay, let's see what this is. Thanks to Noah Kiesecker for coming on the show. Check out his music and art at noahkiesecker.net. And Kiesecker is spelled K-E-E-S-E-C-K-E-R. To stay in touch with me, find ComposerQuest on Facebook, Twitter, or you can email me directly, charlie at composerquest.com. Our question of the week is, how do you deal with the desire for musical perfection? Share your thoughts at forum.composerquest.com. Those of you who've been keeping up with the show know that I've been doing a new segment called All My Musical Children, which is a soap opera based on the musical mating game at darwintunes.org. I'm planning on continuing it until the end of the season, and then we'll have a final wrap-up where we get to hear the whole evolution of our musical loop. Hopefully you've been enjoying this experiment, and if not... Well, there's only three episodes left after this one. So, now it's time for episode four of All My Musical Children. Last week, our musical loop evolved into something that sounded vaguely like the Simpsons theme. Now let's hear what other loops are out there and ready to mate with ours. The one from Darwin Tunes creator Uncool Bob sounded pretty interesting. In the end, I decided our loop should mate with one from Dan Wheeler, aka Yoda. Normally, their mating session would have produced eight babies, but for some reason only four of them popped out. So here they are. I ended up choosing child one. I like the mixture of ambient drone with some subtle percussive things going on. 
Will our little loop stay relaxed and ambient? Or will a melody creep back into the family line? Tune in next week for All My Musical Children. For Paul Sampson's off-the-wall jingle, I decided it would be fun to start with the dialogue from a comic strip Paul created, so I used a computer voice to speak the text. The voice called Tom on my Mac is actually pretty good. I routed the audio into Ableton Live using Soundflower, and then I recorded it there. My podiatrist says my feet are just fine, so I'm discharged, released, free, but now I can't begin a sentence with the words, my podiatrist. The first thing I tried was time-stretching the whole sample. I actually used a technique I learned in the Linda course, Extreme Sound Mangling, which I had plugged at the beginning of this season. The technique is to warp the sample in Ableton Live, then slow the tempo down so that the warping creates some weird glitches. I also pitch-shifted it down a bit. I then duplicated this, pitch shifted it up, and started it a little bit later than the first one, so it would enter almost like the second voice in a fugue. From there, I started grabbing individual words from the original dialogue, and I added different effects to each of them. Here's the word free, time-stretched a little and with a downsampling effect. Here's the word fine, with some crazy modulation effects, plus a filter delay and reverb. I took the word podiatrist and made it into kind of a drum kit. I used a drum rack in Ableton Live, which lets you associate different samples with different MIDI keys. So I chopped up the word into different parts, po, dia, tri, st. Then I added different effects to each of these word chunks to try and make them sound somewhat like a kick, snare, and cymbals. For the word discharged, I once again time warped it and tweaked it to bring out the melodic qualities. For the word can't, I used a grain delay effect which did some crazy pitch shifting. Then I added a resonator effect which boosts certain frequencies. Sometimes the order in which you place effects in the chain makes a big difference. Just for fun, here's the difference if I swap the order of the grain delay and resonator effect. I'll play the original order again, with the grain delay first, then you'll hear what happens if I swap them so the resonator effect happens first. For the words, now I... I used an auto-panning effect, but tweaked it so it would just create quick volume dips instead of actually panning the sound. 
And finally, for the word feet, I used a ping pong delay and a guitar amp effect. I was inspired by Noah Kiesecker's piece Carver, where he used dialogue as a bass layer and added sound effects over it, matching them up with each word. So I thought I'd do the same at the end of this piece. I took all the words I had modified and placed them directly over the original dialogue. I thought of it as kind of a cipher for the code of this piece, so that once you heard this cipher, you could listen back and understand which word was creating which sound. My podiatrist says my feet are just fine, so I'm discharged, released, free, but now I can't begin a sentence with the words, my podiatrist. So once I created a big messy collage of sound, I decided I should have some way of unifying the whole thing. So on the master track, I added three effects, EQ, reverb, and a flanger. I then went through and recorded my twisting of the virtual knobs on each of these effects. I think the gradual changes in these effects help give the piece some sense of direction, otherwise it would have felt even more aimless and random. So before I play the final mix, I want to mention that you can listen to all my production lessons at composerquest.com slash cmpl, or you can search for Charlie's Music Production Lessons in your podcast app of choice. So now here's the Paul Sampson jingle. My podiatrist says my feet are just fine, so I'm discharged, released, free, but now I can't begin a sentence with the words, my podiatrist.